I'm turning today to the Gospel of John, chapter 2 and verse 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, the leaders, that is, of the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, Herod's temple. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They believed the scripture, which scripture? And the word which Jesus had said. Your reference Bible will no doubt take you to Psalm 16. Though some, interestingly, will take you to Psalm 22. And others will take you to Psalm 72. Which scripture? Well, it's... Really, it was compounded from the general teaching of the prophets and the scriptures, the sum total of many different passages. But there it is, they believed the scripture and, in addition, the word which Jesus had said. He had announced his own resurrection. He had told them some three times on different occasions that he would be crucified and he would rise from the dead. And he had indicated in other places also. So here is the resurrection of Christ. And what we often do is go through the, on this Easter Sunday, we go through the uh, events of the resurrection. And sometimes we look at the prophecies, and it's this latter approach I'd like us to take today, to consider just some of the prophecies of the resurrection of Christ. Actually, there are many, and they fall into two categories. There are prophetic statements in which the resurrection of Christ is implied, very strongly implied but it isn't spelled out in plain terms. And then there are a number where resurrection is spelled out much more plainly. But then there's yet another category of prediction in the Old Testament, because there are so very many passages in the Old Testament that predict Messiah, the coming Christ, as a redeemer, as a suffering servant as one who would even die. And he's particularly portrayed in this way in the types and the shadows. We notice that Christ said, with an intended dual meaning, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And it could apply to the temple or it could apply to him personally, which is what he meant. But after all, the temple was a symbol of him. It was a picture of him. 
It was a foreshadowing of him and all that was carried on within it, the sacrifices. So you have through the Old Testament Christ the Messiah spoken of as a redeemer, as a, a sufferer. At the same time, you have so many other passages which speak of him as a living king, as one whose reign will be eternal. And you put the two together. In this category of prophecy, the two events are not actually cemented together in the passage, but they both coexist. The predictions of him as a suffering servant and a dying servant and the predictions of him as an eternal king. So you have the three classes of prophecy. The texts that speak of him in both modes, side by side. The implied prophecies and the direct prophecies. Altogether, there is so much, there is such a cable of prophecy and prediction running through the Old Testament. And it's when we talk about this, it's worth saying, what other historical figure has ever been prophesied? Let alone specifics about his life, such as the incarnation or the resurrection. Well, we are used to the idea that Christ was prophesied. And we forget no one else has ever been subject to prophecy of this quality and of this kind. Now, some years ago, somebody said to me, oh, yes, there are many recorded instances or claims of resurrection. But it just so happened that I wasn't flawed or confused by this statement because one's mind goes back to boyhood and the kind of things that you used to learn in the schools years ago when you were grilled with the 12 Caesars and so on. Not often done today. Perhaps you have much more useful things to learn. But... Oh, who was the foremost person for whom resurrection was claimed in the ancient world? Why, Julius Caesar. Did he not rise from the dead? Ah, but I knew the answer to that. No, he didn't. Nobody ever saw him. Not one person risen from the dead. These Protests get around, you know. Oh, lots of resurrections. Where? Who? Julius Caesar. Never seen. What happened then with Julius Caesar? Well, I'll tell you. This is what we used to learn in childhood. There was Caesar's comet. Caesar died, 44 BC. A few months later the phenomenon of Caesar's comet was said to appear for seven days as a, like a, a bright star in the sky. And it was assumed, naturally by the household of Caesar, they were the ones who concocted this, it was assumed that it was his spirit being demonstrated to be alive 
It was his deification. It became a god roughly two weeks, three weeks after his death. Who saw Julius Caesar? No one. It's just an assumption, friends. It's just a piece of Roman fiction. Who are the others who were raised from the dead? Well, they're mainly legendary, fictitious characters. They're not real people. This is unique, pretty well, to Christ. There are some human claims, but so dubious and so strange. This is unique, that Christ rose from the dead, and we take it for granted. We don't realize such a mass of prediction and prophecy of different kinds and different qualities starts in the Garden of Eden with an implied prophecy. Starts right back there, the words of God to the serpent that there would come about in the course of time the seed of the serpent, that is to say the ongoing activity of the enemy of souls through people also, enemies of God. And there would be a great battle through the ages and through the centuries with that one and the seed of the woman, the first promise, the singular seed of the woman, the great descendant who was to come. And you know the prophecy that the seed of the woman would bruise. You could translate it crush. The word in the Hebrew is gape wide open, like open jaws. Translated in our King James Version, bruise the serpent's head. And the serpent would bruise, gape wide open, as though to engulf and devour and crush the heel of the great descendant. And there you have an implied prophecy of the resurrection. A saviour would come. It would be increasingly clarified and unfolded as the Bible proceeds with promise after promise. And by his personal suffering, he would crush the serpent's head. He would pay the price of sin so that millions of people could be redeemed from the clutches of the enemy of souls. And the human race could be preserved. As we say, God's great project earth could flourish after all and millions of people could occupy heaven. But he would suffer. It would turn out he would suffer death, but he would be resurrected. And it's expressed in that very first promise as the crushing of his heel. But he would live. And the promises go on. Let's turn to Psalm 16. Time is going on. I would have liked to have looked at the book of Job with the most explicit reference to resurrection. But I'm coming back to Psalm 16. And we'll look at some verses here. Verses 8 and 9. This is probably the main scripture that was in mind when... Peter and John 
remembered that these things were taught. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. It's David. And he's in devotion. And he's contemplating. He's, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. This psalm follows, no doubt, the great revelation that was made to David with Nathan, the prophet, that the Messiah, the Son, would come from him through his line. My flesh also shall rest in hope. He said, I shall be buried. My flesh shall be put into the ground, but it shall rest, because his soul will be with God, but his flesh will rest in hope, anticipation of something more for the body. His own body will be resurrected. But then he says in verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Now the modern versions are more right than our King James at this point, because they translate this slightly differently. Instead of thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, they go back to the Hebrew, thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, which means hollow. It stands for the grave or the place or the realm of the dead as far as the body is concerned. The soul goes on, but the body is in the place of the dead. For thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave, in the place or realm of the dead. But then there's a semicolon. And look what happens in verse 10 after the semicolon. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one. Now David is no longer talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah the Son of God who will come. He's given prophecy. Thou wilt not leave my soul, body, in hell, in the grave, neither, separate case, wilt thou suffer, allow, thine Holy One to see corruption. Messiah, God incarnate, he will come to be the representative of the human race to live a life of perfection, to deserve heaven for all his children, to suffer and to die on Calvary, to bear the punishment of their sin on their behalf. He will die and be laid in the grave, but he will not be there long enough to see corruption because he will be raised. And that is a prediction, of course, of resurrection. And David goes on, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. This is beyond the grave. In thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures 
forevermore. That's the passage, most likely, that Peter and John were familiar with. Psalm 16. Let's just go on to Psalm 22. We can only look at one or two this morning, but the point will be clearly made from them. Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a psalm of suffering. It's a psalm of David, and it's telling of an experience of suffering which was so great. But David never suffered like this. David never had an experience, well, not that is recorded of him, anything like this in Psalm 22 for depth of agony and suffering. So what is he talking about? He is speaking as a prophet. He is not speaking of himself. He is plainly speaking of Christ, the Messiah. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if we are being slow of mind, will we remember that Christ even used these words on Calvary's cross? So it must be plain to us. David was predicting Calvary and the desperate forsakenness Christ would feel as, of course, Christ, second person of the Trinity, could never be separated from God the Father. The concert of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one Godhead, can never be broken because they are God, one God. And yet somehow, in his experience, the God-man Christ had to taste our forsakenness. If we perish unforgiven, unconverted, unrepentant, separated from God for all eternity, all good taken away from us, desperately forsaken, it's the punishment. Christ had to bear that. The forsakenness of millions eternally concentrated into six hours. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From the words of my roaring, it would take us all day to go through the psalm and do justice. Cries in verse 2. Then down to verse 6. He is as a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. Terrible humiliation. Verse 7. Can't you see Christ on Calvary? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Didn't that exactly happen to Christ, but never to David? But thou art he that took me out of the womb. 
Verse 11, the appeal to God. Verse 12, the description, the graphic description of Calvary. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. And look at verse 14 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. That wasn't the nails through hands and feet, terrible as they were. It wasn't the crown of thorns and the hanging in the heat of the sun. It was the invisible part of Calvary where the Father smote the Son with all the punishment due to us and he bore it away. In his holy soul he became, as it were, sin for us. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But then, suddenly, if you come down to verse 22, have you noticed this in Psalm 22, verse 22? The dramatic change of language and tone. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I please thee, praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. Verse 24, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And so on. Verse 25, verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. The sufferer, what's happened to him? Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And look at the second part of verse 28. And he is the governor among the nations. He doesn't say it, but he's risen from the dead. He's ruling and reigning. It is the resurrection in Psalm 22. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor. A seed shall serve him, verse 30. They shall come, verse 31, and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. We could go to Psalm 24, but time is passing on. Just a glance at this, the psalm of resurrection and ascension. Have you noticed this? We, we sing the Wesley's paraphrase of it or versification of it quite frequently. We close the service with it today. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. 
and it proceeds. Now verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? What does that mean? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord was where the temple was. Solomon's temple. Soon after this, but David knew all about that. He held the designs. He'd collected all the materials. He knew precisely the design and purpose of Solomon's temple. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? It's a poetic way of saying, who will go in to the holy of holies? There's the temple. It had its outer courts, and it had its inner courts, and its innermost court, the holy of holies. It represented the presence of God. It had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the cherubim of mercy. It represented salvation and the presence of God. It was a holy place. And to mark that out, only the high priest was allowed in there and only once a year and not without offering sacrifice for his sins. What did it all mean? The entry into heaven. How will we get into heaven? The barred off holy place. It was very elaborately shuttered. It had a great curtain. It had great doors made of fur. It had chains as well that hung in front of the doors. The threefold barrier into the holy of holies. You can't come in to the presence of God. Only the high priest once a year and not without the shedding of blood for sin. It's going to have to be a mighty sacrifice. It hasn't been made yet. Something far greater than the sacrifice of sheep and bulls. They were just tokens, symbols, prophecies of a great sacrifice that would have to be made. It was in the event the sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God. But there was the Holy of Holies. Who will enter in? Now look at this psalm. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Can we? Oh no. Only one. Verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Only one human being can enter into the presence of God. He would be perfect. It would be Christ, the Holy One. Verse 4 again, or verse 5, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. He is worthy. He will enter in. He offers his perfect righteousness for us to be credited to us. He suffers and dies on Calvary to make an atonement for our sin. Don't forget you need both. 
We need our sins forgiven. That removes the condemnation. But we're still not in heaven. How do we deserve heaven? The perfect righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift, credited to us, wrapped around us like a garment, with our sins forgiven and wearing his righteousness, we may deserve everlasting bliss. It's twofold. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We go in behind him, under his wing, trusting in him as his followers, in his name. We are in Christ. We can't go in through any merit of our own. Verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek him. Him, he is the great one that seek thy face, O Jacob. And then those exalting words, verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift up you great chains, open wide ye doors, be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, it's Christ. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Could it be plainer in prophecy? The Lord of hosts, Messiah, who would come. But hasn't he died? Yes, but he's obviously been raised again by his own power and by the power of the Father also. The resurrection. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? I'd like to have looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 53. I won't. The crucifixion of Christ. Never skim over the final verses which speak of his resurrection. The last verses of Isaiah 53 bring the dying, suffering Saviour back to life as the eternal King. Of course, it's the resurrection. It's there. But I'm going to turn, just to close, to John chapter 11. And in verse 21, this is following, or this is during, just before rather, the uh, uh, raising of Lazarus, shortly before the crucifixion. Then said Martha, one of the two sisters of Lazarus, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise 
again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Just pause there. Martha knew all about the resurrection. Martha knew there would be a general resurrection at the last day. Martha knew that all those who loved God and believed in him and were saved would receive resurrection bodies at the end of time. She knew it. It's important to notice this because the question is often asked. You speak of all these prophecies, but did they understand them? Did they know what they meant? We're looking at them with hindsight. We know the history of Christ. Did they understand it? Oh yes, the believers did. Here's the Lord saying almost casually to Martha about the resurrection. And she says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. The pious knew, the believing hearts understood and knew. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I will bring it about. I will inject the life into millions of bodies. But I will be raised. I am the resurrection. He will lead the way, the resurrection of Christ. Some people, and they mean well, and I don't criticize them for a moment. Some people, many people, they think along these lines. If I can prove the resurrection to people, they will believe in Christ. So I will look at all the evidences for resurrection, not just the prophecies. Search the record. Look at the early secular records and the Roman references to the resurrection of Christ. There's a number of them too. And I will prove that Christ rose from the dead. Is that a valid thing to do? Well, it's a good thing to do. Christians love it. And yes, some non-Christians are quite convinced by it. But most are not. Because most people will say, oh, but that's so long ago. That's over 2,000 years ago. How can you trust those records? How can you be sure? How can you know whether, how long afterwards were they written? They can lose it all in a cloud of doubts and confusion, the mists of time. So the resurrection of Christ isn't so much 2,000 years later a knockover proof. It's not so useful as an apologetic. It should be. Well, let's face it, it isn't. But the great purposes of the resurrection, which literally happened, are not there in proving things. 
the great purposes of the resurrection are the message to us. Number one, the resurrection proves that the atonement was 100% successful. Satan can never say, but perhaps all my sin was not borne away because Christ rose from the dead and that involved the Father, the Father's endorsement. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are all involved in the resurrection. So it's the great endorsement that the offering up of the obedience and righteousness of Christ was more than sufficient to deserve heaven for all his people. And the atoning death successfully atoned for all our sin and nothing was left. That's the greatest thing about the resurrection. And of course it proves to us as believers that Christ has the power of life. And thirdly, it indicates what will happen to us if our forerunner was resurrected. We shall be also in his train. The resurrection reveals his attributes. While he lived on earth, all the attributes of God could not be seen in Christ because he was living in subjection to the Father, a life of obedience. He was occupying a feeble human body. You could see manifestations of his divine power, but only in the healings and here and there you couldn't see it fully revealed. You see in the resurrection all the attributes of God are in Christ. You see how Christ will deal with his people. Look at him, friends, moving among his disciples, so kind to them, so familiar with them. When he was raised from the dead, did he change? In his ten resurrection appearances, was he haughty? Was he now a distant divine king? No. Precious revelation. You see him tenderly relating to his disciples, just as he did before his crucifixion. What comfort for us. Our Savior is right here, and he deals with us in great tenderness and affection and patience and wonder and cares for each one of his own. The resurrection and the resurrection appearances show us that they show us a living Christ. Our time is up, dear friends. The resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is the coming hope the one we live for, the one we shall see. Oh, don't end life, even as a Christian, or be here at his return, and suddenly, before he takes you, gripped with a spasm of regret, I should have served him more. <laughs> 
I should have loved him more. I should have made him known more, represented him more, looked forward to him more. Don't let any of us be in that position before he takes us to the eternal reward and everlasting happiness. Live for him now as his people. Give yourselves to him, the resurrection of Christ our Saviour.